Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 33, Trafalgar. Napoleon was master in Europe, but he was also a prisoner there. Bertrand de Jovenel. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you all enjoyed our last episode on the Ulm campaign, the first installment in our series within a series here on the War of the Third Coalition. We listened as Napoleon and his marshals, especially Murat and Ney, pounded their way through Bavaria and took out the Austrian army, led by Field Marshal Karl Mack, forcing their surrender in less than a month. On October 20th, 1805, Ulm capitulated, and Napoleon's forces now had a clear shot at the Austrian capital, a shot which they intended to take. Now, at that moment, it seemed as though nothing would stop Napoleon from complete domination, perhaps not just of Europe of the greater European global sphere of influence. The coalition forces, battered almost single-handedly by Napoleon for the better part of a decade, were in need of a massive victory to help stop the bleeding. And one day later, on October 21st, 1805, they would get it in one of the most consequential battles that would have reverberations that lasted through the Second World War. Now, given that it's how we closed out last week, as well as the title for today's episode, I think we all know what I'm talking about. So let's talk about the heroic last stand of Horatio Nelson in his masterpiece at the Battle of Trafalgar. And as we've done so often in some of these concurrent episodes, I do want to rewind a bit and give some context as to what was going on on the Iberian Peninsula, as well as the Sea at Large, during the last few months. Now back in the late spring of 1805, Napoleon was gathering his war council and debating when would be the best time to invade the British Isles. His army of the sea was drilling away at Boulogne, and Napoleon was keen to strike one quick blow to the Royal Navy in order for the French to have just enough support to launch their flotilla across the English Channel. But there were problems here right from the start. Let's elaborate. One of the most glaring weaknesses that Napoleon faced when it came to his navy and it would be one which was about to become glaringly apparent throughout this episode, was the quality of his officer corps when compared to those of the Royal Navy. Britain boasted an impressive cadre of experienced and talented naval officers, some of whom we've mentioned in this episode, and many of whom would go down as some of the best in British history. They were skilled, innovative, and had logged years on the open ocean in both civilian and combat operations, which proved vital in their quick decision-making in battle. The French, on the other hand, were the complete opposite. Their officers were younger, had little battle experience, and had spent considerably less time in command, as many of France's more seasoned admirals had either retired or were purged during the French Revolution. Now, let's see how that comes back to bite the French, shall we? It's actually a bit ironic, because everything that made the French army so invincible for all of those years, its officer corps, made up of soldiers from the working classes and not the nobility, their innovative ways of waging warfare which went against established social norms, and their principles of promoting based on merit rather than rank, 
are some of the same reasons that led to their utter destruction at Trafalgar. Many of their officers had neither engaged in naval warfare to the extent that the British were able to wage it, nor were they able to think so quickly on the fly like the likes of Nelson, Sidney Smith, and Cuthbert Collingwood, who we will meet here shortly. So in that vein, we've already met one of these French admirals on a few occasions throughout this series, most recently during episode 31, but I figured it might be time to do a full introduction to the man who is seldom remembered today, but will go down in history as the man who was on the losing side of Trafalgar, and that of course is Vice Admiral Pierre-Charles Villeneuve. Pierre-Charles Villeneuve was born on December 31, 1763 in in the Provence, which made him 60 years Napoleon's senior. He joined the French Navy at age 15, and he would go on to see action during the American Revolutionary War after France joined the side of the Patriots following the battles of Saratoga. Now, despite hailing from an aristocratic background, or perhaps because of it, he sympathized with the Third Estate and endorsed the French Revolution, likely sparing him from the guillotine during the years of the Terror. Villeneuve served during numerous small skirmishes at sea during the French Revolutionary Wars, but he first made an appearance in our series during the famous Battle of the Nile, serving on the Guillantel, notable as being one of the only two French ships to escape capture or destruction by the Royal Navy. Now, Villeneuve would eventually be captured and imprisoned at Malta, where he would ultimately be released, and Villeneuve was heavily criticized in the French press at the time for refusing to engage Nelson in battle, opting to rather avoid him and live to fight another day. Napoleon would also hold this view and kept him on as one of his top naval officers, stationing him at the critical French port of Toulon, commanding their Mediterranean fleet. Now, this is where we get taken back to the spring of 1805. Because if you remember back to episode 31, Napoleon's plan was to send Villeneuve from Toulon across the Atlantic down to the West Indies, where he would rendezvous with their Spanish allies, jet back across the Atlantic, and attack the British blockading the other French naval stronghold at Brest in Brittany. Now once the Brest fleet was cleared of any British interference, they would be able to assist Villeneuve in holding the British off while Napoleon's flotilla crossed the English Channel and invaded England. But, as we saw, the British had other ideas, and other naval officers who put Monsieur Villeneuve to shame. Firstly, commanding the Brest blockade was none other than Admiral William Cornwallis, who was the younger brother to the more infamous Charles Cornwallis many of our American listeners may have heard of. Cornwallis held a firm grip on the Brest fleet, maintaining a close blockade with the Channel fleet, believing it the best way to lure the French into an open pitched battle, as well as to open their ports for a siege. Meanwhile, blockading the French at Toulon, was Admiral Horatio Nelson, who actually had the opposite approach. You see, Nelson, similar to Napoleon, wanted his enemies to come to him and then expose their weaknesses by utilizing his strengths. As Nelson put it so eloquently, quote, to be able to get at the enemy, you must let them come to you if you cannot get at them. Nevertheless, a bad weather blew many of Nelson's ships off course, and Villeneuve was able to escape the blockade at Toulon and proceeded through the treacherous choke point of the Strait of Gibraltar into the open ocean, rendezvousing with the Spanish at Cadiz before heading for the West Indies. And Nelson, for his part, was given poor intelligence and made course for Egypt, believing that Villeneuve would go there instead, but quickly changed course once he found out that the French were heading for the Caribbean. And Nelson, in another ode to just how brilliant of a sea captain he was, headed east while Villeneuve went west, completely changed course, 
and still only missed Villeneuve by a few days. Nevertheless, he did miss him, and Villeneuve was able to reach the Caribbean, meet up with the Spanish, and turn the course back for Europe. Now, Nelson still had Egypt on his mind, and he set sail for the Mediterranean. But the British intercepted intelligence of the true French battle plans to attack Cornwallis's fleet blockading Brest and then clear the way for the French invasion of the British Isles. First Lord of the Admiralty, Lord Barnum, then ordered Cornwallis to join forces with Vice Admiral Robert Calder and essentially create a ship wall blocking the English Channel, but Calder, taking the initiative, intercepted the French and fought them in the Battle of Cape Finisterre, which we alluded to back in episode 31. But Napoleon still believed that the blockade could be broken, and he then ordered Villeneuve to make for Brest to try and hold off the British forces so that he could launch his invasion in August. But Villeneuve, if we haven't noticed already, wasn't exactly a man of action, and, sensing that the Royal Navy was tracking his movements, decided to make for Cadiz to resupply and recruit additional Spanish sailors for the fight that lay ahead. With no word on Villeneuve's movements towards the western French coast, Napoleon made the decision to abandon the invasion of Great Britain and use the army of the coast to invade Germany and initiate his own campaign. This pretty much gets us up to speed on what was going on at the beginning of the last episode, episode 32. But while Napoleon turned his attention to the east, there was still a lot going on at sea in the west. Nelson, briefly, returned to Britain to a hero's welcome after two long years on active duty, but his stay there would be short-lived because when he received word of the combined French and Spanish fleet at Cadiz, he left Britain to aid in the pursuit, though he had to wait until September 15th as his flagship and one of history's great naval warships, HMS Victory, was being repaired. Admiral Cornwallis, meanwhile, left the blockade at Brest with 20 ships of the line and sailed for Cadiz. These ships would form the nucleus of the British contingent at Trafalgar, and in doing so, Cornwallis left only 11 ships blockading Brest meaning that any French armada would easily break through it. But again, Napoleon had abandoned the initiative of taking out the blockade, and thus Cornwallis would need to worry about the French attacking the fleet any longer. Now Nelson's plan was to draw the French and Spanish out of the harbor into a pitched battle, where their ships would be vulnerable to attack without assisting artillery bombardment from the land. On September 16th, Napoleon sent orders to Villeneuve to put to sea at the first available opportunity, and sailed to Naples to help reinforce his troops there in the Italian theater, then, hopefully, engage a numerically inferior British fleet, or at the least, a fleet spread too thinly. But the British would make that departure nearly impossible. First off, both sides were suffering badly from supply shortages, but the British were able to rely on stable supply depots, namely in Portugal and Gibraltar, and in just over a month their provisions were actually back to full stock. But the French, well, they were being blockaded by the Royal Mediterranean Fleet, and they were unable to get the necessary food and ammunition needed for a pitched battle, let alone one against the world's premier navy. Many of their ships were also in need of repair after the long journeys across the Atlantic, and without the sufficient supplies or even the cash to pay for them had they been available, many of the French ships of the line were already severely compromised without even firing a shot. Which, of course, brings us to the next issue facing the French manpower. As it stood at present, the French were, at a minimum, about 2,000 men short of having an adequate fighting force, again, let alone one that could take on the Royal Navy. Now, adding insult to injury was the fact that the majority of the sailors that the French did have on hand were too inexperienced, many of them having never seen combat, 
or for those who had, saw only minimal sortie action throughout their careers. Much of the French naval school of thought at the time was paid towards seamanship first and weaponry second. It would seem counterintuitive, especially since the Navy's primary role is to, you know, be a fighting force at sea with weapons, but hey, I digress. Now, many of the French sailors had to learn much of this on the fly, since Napoleon, again an army officer by trade, had diverted much more attention to his army than to his navy. And I'm telling you all this because right from the get-go, the French were, well, at the very minimum in a compromise situation, and Nelson hadn't even fired a single shot yet. And even when the French supply situation did improve in October, a fully stocked Nelson was seen patrolling the waters around Toulon with a fed and motivated navy at his back. Reluctant, again, to engage him on open waters, Villeneuve and his admiralty voted to remain in harbor rather than make for Naples. Their rationale was that even if they were drawn out in a pitched battle, with their combined Spanish fleet, their total numbers would still outnumber the British with some of the best warships in the world at the time. Which I think is as good a time as any to talk about some of those ships with just a week remaining before the battle. So let's dive into the fleets, first for the French and the Spanish. The Franco-Spanish Allied fleet fielded the largest ships at the Battle of Trafalgar. They had four first-rate ships to the line, all of them Spanish, including a 130-gun Santa Cisma Trinidad and the 112-gun Principe de Asturias Santa Ana. They did not have any second-rate ships to the line, but they fielded 29 third-rate ships for a total of 33 ships to the line, along with 30,000 men and over 2,500 guns. They were also aided by five frigates and two brigs, all French, for a total of 40 ships comprising the fleet. Now, the British, meanwhile, had a smaller force, though not by much, and their leadership certainly made up for the small deficit in the numbers. They fielded 27 total ships to the line, three first-rate, including the aforementioned HMS Victory, four second-rate, and 20 third-rate. Nelson's fleet also included four frigates, a schooner, and a cutter for a total of 33 ships. They also had just over 2,100 cannons, but only 17,000 sailors, a significant disadvantage most navies would have had a difficult time overcoming, but most navies are not led into battle by Admiral Horatio Nelson. Now, by early October, word had reached Napoleon that Villeneuve had not left Cadiz for Naples, as he was originally ordered to do. With his patience wearing thin and himself on the verge of his great victory in the Ulm campaign, Napoleon issued a new order on October 18th to replace Villeneuve with Vice Admiral François Rosalie. Villeneuve was also stuck with a war council split on the proposition of what to do next. Many did want to make the journey to Italy, but as we mentioned earlier, the majority opted to stay in Cadiz for fear of being forced into the choke point of the Strait of Gibraltar, where they would easily be picked off by Nelson. However, when word reached Villeneuve that his sacking was imminent, he changed his mind again and decided to set sail before Rosalie, who at this point had just arrived in Madrid in central Spain, could reach the fleet. Villeneuve also received word that a small British detachment of six ships had docked at Gibraltar for repairs, meaning that the total British force was weaker, and he figured that they could, with their already superior numbers, fight the rest of the British off. Villeneuve used this as a pretext to leave harbor and head for the Mediterranean, but unfortunately for the French, it was then that the winds stopped. 
Yes, you heard that correctly. After weeks of intense gales, the weather suddenly turned calm in an otherwise windy region of southwest Europe. Now, this alerted the British to the French intentions because they were slow to leave port with little wind to fill their sails, giving the Royal Navy plenty of time to prepare for an engagement. What's more is that many of Villeneuve's captains were still reluctant to leave Cadiz so hastily, and thus this combined Franco-Spanish fleet, split into four squadrons of ships from both countries, by the way, did not leave port in an orderly fashion, with some ships even refusing to follow the orders that Villeneuve gave. Nevertheless, on October 20th, just hours after Napoleon had forced Ulm's capitulation, Villeneuve and three columns set sail for the Strait of Gibraltar to the southeast. On the night of the 20th, the French ship Aquile, one of the four first-rate ships, spotted a sizable force of 18 British ships to the line in hot pursuit. With darkness falling, Villeneuve gave the command to prepare for battle and ordered his ships into a single line. When Nelson's fleet was spotted the next morning, Villeneuve decided to break the line and ordered his fleet back into the original three columns to retreat back to Cadiz, but panicking, and because his sailors likely were unable to do so in an orderly fashion, he decided to switch back to the single line to form a wall. The problem was, the end result was a disjointed mess, and the line, if we'll call it that, was a loose formation, if we're being generous. It was here where we saw Nelson's genius in true form. And so before we dive into the combat in earnest, let's talk about Nelson's strategy as it pertained to the Battle of Trafalgar. Similar to the ingenuity and creativity that we saw in our episode on the Battle of the Nile, Nelson employed a new tactic of attacking the French at Trafalgar that has now become legendary, as it was not only devastatingly effective, but it was the final hurrah in the last battle of the Age of Sail. The prevailing naval battle strategy at the time was simple, and it is one that we've touched on a few times in the series. Both sides would line up parallel to one another and exchange broadsides until one side either ran out of ammunition or you know, ships. It was a true pitched battle to see which ships and crews were better equipped for the moment, and it made sense to some extent, because having ships arranged in a line meant that orders could be given fairly easily by the flags, as most of the ships could see them, and then they could move damaged ships out of the line and replace them with fresh ones with relative ease, given the experience level of the crews. The problem was, many of these engagements were inconclusive, and it minimized the damage, or rather lack thereof, to both sides, meaning that a decisive victory was rare. Nelson, however, wanted to change that, as he knew that knocking the Franco-Spanish fleet out at Trafalgar would ensure British naval superiority for the remainder of the war, and thus they would have a massive upper hand in the economic embargo that would naturally follow. So Nelson decided that in order to achieve that decisive victory, he needed to break the French lines, meaning that instead of firing broadsides parallel to the French, he would attack them head-on, i.e. perpendicular to their line. He would approach the line in two columns, one towards the center of the enemy line, in a direct line of considerable fire, and the other on the trailing end of the line, where both columns would then surround the middle third, forcing them to fight to the end and determine a winner. Nelson wanted the line to be broken in front of their flagship, Bukantua, because the rest of the ships would be unable to see the orders given to them by their masts. 
And so if you've ever wondered why the top ship in a country's navy is called a flagship, well, now you know. Nelson's battle plan had three principal advantages. Firstly, he knew that by attacking the Franco-Spanish line head-on, he would force their separate sections to force in ship-to-ship battles, which he knew he would have the advantage of as this would create confusion. His ships, which were of superior quality, would be better equipped to handle a one-on-one fight, and his men were better skilled seamen in addition to having a much higher morale at this point. Secondly, by engaging them head-on, he would force them into battle, preventing their escape, which was critical because that's precisely what Villeneuve wanted to do. And lastly, with concentrated fire on the Franco-Spanish rear, it would take even longer for the French van to come to their relief, and when they did, due to the angle of the British ships, they would be in a direct line of fire for broadsides by the Royal Navy. Basically, by concentrating on the rear, they would eliminate that and the van while the center would be surrounded and left isolated. The main drawback, as you would imagine, was that the British vans from both columns would be subjected by raking broadsides from the French and Spanish without being able to return fire until they had completely engaged, but Nelson was aware of this. In fact, he was so confident in his men and believed the French and Spanish sailors to be so inferior as to fire on moving targets that he had little hesitation to employ the strategy. Nelson was also a sage seaman. He was aware that anything and everything could go wrong on open waters, But so far as that one of his ships found an enemy vessel, he was confident that they would emerge victorious. Lastly, Nelson ordered his ships painted in their iconic black and gold so that they would be distinguishable from the enemy. This design has since been called the Nelson Checker, and the HMS Victory is painted in these very colors to this day. And so with all that established, let's get to the battle itself. October 21st, 1805, the Battle of Trafalgar. At 6 a.m. on the 21st, Nelson gave the order for all ships to prepare for battle, with their fleet about 20 miles to the northwest of Cape Trafalgar. At 8 a.m., Villeneuve ordered his men to turn about and return to Cadiz again, which essentially meant that his rear would now be placed in the van commanded by Admiral Pierre Dumanoir Le Pelet. Now, adding to the confusion was that the wind would often shift directions and, in general, was light, meaning that maneuvering the ships was impossible but for the most skilled seamen, and, as we've stated a few times already, the French had those in short supply. By the time the orders had been fulfilled, over a half hour had passed, and the Franco-Spanish line formed a sort of angled crescent. Think of a longer crescent moon with the lead ships facing towards the European continent in the rear-facing Africa. And this meant that the slower ships were leeward, i.e. downwind, and closer to the shore. And by 11 a.m., well, Nelson's columns became visible to the French and the Spanish. As the British approached, Nelson faced some confusion as to which ship was the French flagship, as neither the French nor the Spanish were flying command pennants to denote their command structure. He was also concerned about the size of the Franco-Spanish fleet. They were outnumbered by six ships, and the sheer size of the manpower the French had on them was significant. There was no way to avoid any one ship being doubled on, and thus their battle plan needed to work out to near perfection to be successful. With about an hour until first contact, 
many British sailors watched on anxiously as the French and Spanish fleet grew bigger and bigger as the horizon drew closer. One sailor was quoted as saying, quote, During this momentous preparation, the human mind had ample time for meditation, for it was evident that the fate of England rested on this battle. At 11.45 a.m., Nelson sent his now iconic flag signal from the HMS Victory, reading, quote, England expects that every man will do his duty. According to the man who consulted Nelson on the signal, future Rear Admiral John Pascoe, the decision went thusly, quote, His lordship came to me on the poop, and after ordering certain signals to be made, about a quarter noon he said, quote, Mr. Pascoe, I wish to say to the fleet, England confides that every man will do his duty. And he added, You must be quick, for I have one more to make, which is for close action. I replied, quote, If your lordship will permit me to substitute expects for confides, the signal will soon be completed because the word expects is in the vocabulary and confides must be spelt. His lordship replied in haste and with seeming satisfaction, quote, That will do, Pasco. Make it directly. From here, the battle began in earnest. Nelson led the northern column, with victory first in formation windward. Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood led the southern group in the HMS Royal Sovereign sailing leeward. Both columns attacked at a nearly right angle, and Collingwood, after adjusting his column slightly to match that of Nelson, said to his men, quote, Now, gentlemen, let us do something today which the world may talk of hereafter. At noon, Villeneuve gave the order to engage the enemy, and one of their first-rate ships of the line, Forgo, fired the first shots at Royal Sovereign. Now, because the wind was so light, the British direct attack would come under heavy raking fire that they would need to withstand for quite a while. Victory, for example, was under direct fire for almost an hour before she was able to come about and return fire on her own. But Royal Sovereign, recently having had her bottom cleaned and all of her sails out, was lighter and faster, and outran the rest of the British fleet to the Allied line. Making first contact just past noon, and under heavy fire from four Spanish and French ships, she was able to break the French line astern one of the Spanish flagships, Santa Ana, commanded by Admiral Ignacio Maria de Alava, upon which she fired a devastating double-shotted raking broadside of her own. Collingwood, upon seeing the hull of the ship splinter into the air, commented to his captain, Edward Rotham, quote, what would Nelson give to be here? Behind Royal Sovereign came the third-rate ship HMS Belial, though she was also engaged by four ships and was completely dismasted and unable to sail. She would be relieved just under an hour later, but still, the positioning of the back line of the Franco-Spanish fleet was such that it made it virtually impossible for them to assist despite their superior numbers. So the British fleet, while outnumbered, was able to engage the first line in fierce ship-to-ship combat. By 2 p.m., the line was completely broken, and the majority of the rear Franco-Spanish ships had either been sunk or surrendered their crews. Now, meanwhile, in Nelson's northern column, victory was under heavy fire from the ships Ero, Santa Cisma Trinidad, Redotable, and Neptune. Now, many of her sailors tried to position her in order to return fire, but they were unable to do so under the hail of cannon shot. As a result, the Victory lost her wheel and had to be steered below deck, though fortunately many of the shots from the Franco-Spanish line missed their intended targets, 
and Victory was able to break the line at 12.45 p.m. with relatively light damage by fanning a maneuver in which she would appear to the French that the British would line up parallel to them. But at the last second, Nelson ordered his ships to straighten again and then proceed in a direct attack, breaking through their line between Villeneuve's flagship Bucanter and Redotable. Victory then pulled up alongside Bucanter, who needed to turn to port in order to engage and return volley, and unleashed a crippling, treble-shotted raking broadside through her stern and killed somewhere between two and four hundred men of the 800-man ship. Completely dismasted and dismantled, Victory had taken the French flagship out of action in a matter of minutes. Villeneuve was so resigned to his fate that he commented to his men that he would take his Imperial Eagle with him on board the British ship as a prisoner, believing that the British were about to board Bucantour to finish them off. However, Victory decided that with the French flagship disabled, they would focus her fire on Redotable. The next three ships of Nelson's column, Temeraire, Conqueror, and Neptune, would pick the scraps off Bucantour while Nelson dealt with Redotable. It would be here where Nelson went from hero to a mortal. Now, soon after disengaging Bucantur, Victory's starboard side faced Redotable's port. Closing in tight quarters, their masts eventually locked, and Redotable, possessing a strong infantry unit, prepared to board Victory, who was now taking on heavy damage from the surrounding French and Spanish ships on all sides. Now, while Victory was able to offer some resistance to the boarding party, the French also employed skilled sharpshooters from her tops. And at 1.15 p.m., one of their musket balls went directly through Nelson's left shoulder, passing through his spine at the 6th and 7th thoracic vertebrae and lodged below his right scalpula in his back. Nelson, resigned to his fate, said, quote, They finally succeeded. I am dead. From here, he was carried below deck to be attended to and continued to carry out orders from the operating table for the next three hours. And while we and he knew that the wound was fatal. His surgeons did all they could to attend to one of Britain's great naval heroes to save his life. And we'll revisit Nelson's final moments shortly, though, because first, we need to discuss the final moments of the Battle of Trafalgar. After Nelson was brought below deck, men from Redotable prepared to board victory, using grenades to shock the Royal Navy sailors, which forced the British gunners to the top deck to repulse the boarding, but this meant that Victory ceased firing her cannons. However, just when it seemed like Victory would be overrun, Temeraire, the second ship in Nelson's windward column, approached the starboard side of Redotable and blasted their crew with a carronade, causing many casualties, including her captain, Jean-Jacques Etienne Lucas. At 1.55 p.m., Redotable surrendered, followed by the Spanish ship Santa Cisma Trinidad, and including their flagship Bucanter, the Franco-Spanish Allied fleet lost three of her most important ships in less than three hours of fighting. Now with their center and rear disintegrating, the Franco-Spanish van made an attempt to relieve their center, but quickly abandoned the idea after they saw more and more British ships coming to the attack, swarming the center and causing its total collapse. Faced with the reality of their own annihilation, the van, led by Le Pelé, sailed away back to Cadiz, leaving the rest of the Allied fleet to their fate. Now first, they intended to make for Toulon and hopefully restock there, which was the order originally given by Villeneuve, but 
knowing the waters were being patrolled by Rear Admiral Thomas Lewis, Le Pelé changed course and decided to make for the French Atlantic ports instead. The four ships that Le Pelé led out, the Formidable, Scipion, Duguay Ruin, and Mont Blanc, would remain at large until their final capture at the Battle of Cape Ortegal on November 4th of 1805. This would be the final battle in the Trafalgar campaign and would officially confirm Britain's naval superiority over the French. Now Nelson, who at this point was coming in and out of consciousness, ordered his fleet to anchor as a storm was brewing. When the storm blew up, many of the damaged ships from both sides ran aground on the nearby shoals, eventually being recaptured or repurposed by some of the French and Spanish prisoners. In any event, the battle, for all intents and purposes, was over. British surgeon William Beatty, still attending to Nelson, heard him murmur, quote, Thank God I have done my duty. After fetching additional supplies, when Beatty returned, Nelson's pulse was weak and he closed his eyes. Nelson's chaplain, Alexander Scott, who had been by his side the entire time, recorded his final words as, quote, God and my country. At 4.30 p.m., Nelson took his last breaths on earth, nearly three hours after being shot and just after the battle's conclusion. He saw his battle plan through to the end and died in a manner befitting the legend that he was. If he was to die in battle, there was no better way than for him to do so in one of the most significant naval engagements in history. Once the battle was over, only 11 Allied ships were still floating, with only five being deemed seaworthy in the immediate term, while the rest were either destroyed or taken by the British as prizes. Allied command was passed over to Commodore Julien Cosma two days later, as Villeneuve had been taken prisoner by the British. Cosma, along with Commodore Enrique MacDonald, planned a rescue mission to recapture some of the British prizes. Sailing with four ships in a favorable wind, they left Cadiz and sailed out towards the British fleet. Now the British, meanwhile, were left with their prize ships, and he needed a way to tow them back to port, which was a substantial feat considering the battered state of many of their own ships. After leaving port, the wind shifted west-southwest, which created heavy seas, and many of the British prizes broke their tow ropes. And then, at around noon on October 23rd, Collingwood, now senior in command with Nelson's death, ordered his best ships to meet the oncoming threat from Cosmo and McDonnell, both of whom had been spotted on the horizon. Collingwood ordered to establish a loose line in front of the prize ships, but amazingly, once the Allied fleet approached, they decided not to attack after all. Now, obviously Collingwood was pleased with the outcome, as all of his men were exhausted after two days of gruesome battle and ship towing, though in the confusion, Cosmo and McDonald's team were able to retake two Spanish ships of the line, the Santa Ana and Neptuno, but only Santa Ana would make it to port, as Neptuno would be wrecked during an unexpected gale. Other prize ships had drifted off and attempted to make it back to Cadiz, with many running aground and a few succeeding. In fact, Collingwood, fearing additional uprisings from the captured French and Spanish prisoners, decided instead to scuttle or burn many of the remaining prize ships, believing them far more trouble than what they were worth. In the end, the Allied counterattack expedition ended up doing more harm than good. Cosma would retake two Spanish ships, with, again, only one making it back to port, 
but at the cost of, of French and two other Spanish vessels in doing so. The British would take only four ships back as prizes, preferring to leave the rest to burn and then sink to the bottom of the Atlantic. When all was said and done, only nine ships in total would make it back to Cadiz out of a combined fleet of 33. It was an incalculable victory for the British and a devastating loss for the French, their greatest naval fleet all but annihilated in three days. The Spanish, French, and British then spent the following week in negotiations on prisoner exchanges, especially for those who had gone ashore to help the wounded and to clear the wreckage. Most historians agree that most of the prisoners on both sides were treated humanely and that the exchanges went smoothly, especially considering the bitter fighting which had ensued only days earlier. Nevertheless, the final tallies of the Battle of Trafalgar are staggering. With a force of 30,000 men and 33 ships of the line, the Allied fleet suffered 4,395 killed, 2,542 wounded, between seven and 8,000 captured, and the loss or capture of 22 ships. The British, with a force of 27 ships of the line and only 17,000 men, suffered 458 dead, 1,208 wounded, and none of their ships were captured or destroyed, though many were badly damaged and would need months of repairs. I've thrown the term overwhelming victory around a few times in the series already, but the Battle of Trafalgar was about as overwhelming a victory as the Navy could have. And for the French, well, let's just say it would be their naval death now. Now, while the disparity of the deaths and booty is stark, it's not all that surprising. Nelson had a game plan, and he stuck to it, no matter how daring or unconventional it was for the time. His men were trained, motivated, and highly skilled at sea, as they had already spent months on the open ocean and blockading the French ports. And while many of the French sailors had also been at sea crossing the Atlantic to rendezvous with the Spanish, this was actually something which played against them. They were tired, had low morale, and were not experienced in naval combat to defend against such an aggressive plan that Nelson employed. Nelson sought a decisive engagement, one that would guarantee that Britain would rule the seas. As he lay dying on the operating table, he got exactly what he wanted. After the battle's conclusion, Rosalie, who if we remember was supposed to have taken command of the French fleet before Villeneuve set sail against orders, reached Cadiz astonished to see a fleet of only a handful of ships after expecting to see nearly 20. Now that fleet, ironically, would be seized nearly three years later by the Spanish to be used against the French, but that's a story for a different day. News of the battle in France was a closely guarded secret, and many of the papers of the day actually falsely wrote that it had been a decisive French victory. Now Napoleon, again only days after having forced Ulm's capitulation, wouldn't find out about Trafalgar for over a month completely oblivious to the fact that he had now been made a permanent resident on the European continent for the remainder of his rule. Napoleon had already abandoned his intentions to invade Great Britain, but after Trafalgar, the French were never able to seriously challenge the British on the open ocean again. Napoleon is indeed one of history's greatest military commanders, but his achievements are reserved for his army only. If he was going to rule Europe, he would need to do so by land campaign and land campaign alone. As for the British, Trafalgar has become synonymous with their naval dominance, a dominance which would continue through the Second World War, 
140 years later. While Napoleon did try to build a large French fleet later on in his rule, the British used their superior numbers and leadership to always keep the French in check, and Napoleon would be on St. Helena before he would ever see the realization of his Navy's renaissance. Nelson, who was transported back to Britain in a barrel of brandy to preserve his body, was given a hero's funeral, and Villeneuve, at this point in British custody, was allowed to attend the funeral to pay his respects. King George III remarked on hearing the news of Nelson's death as such, We have lost more than we have gained. The Times reported at the time, quote, We do not know whether we should mourn or rejoice. The country has gained the most splendid and decisive victory that has ever graced the naval annals of England, but it has been dearly purchased. A statue of Nelson stands today in London's Trafalgar Square, named, of course, for the battle for which he entered the annals of history. And so that concludes our episode on the Battle of Trafalgar. Because for as triumphant a victory as it was, it did not impact the state of affairs in the near term when it came to the War of the Third Coalition. In fact, it didn't really impact the War of the Third Coalition at all. Trafalgar's impact is that it affected Napoleon's greater ambitions of global dominance, but it did little to stem the momentum he was building in his conquest over the continent. And next episode, we're going to finish off 1805 in grand style. Because next episode, we are going to be talking about the campaign that would become Napoleon's masterpiece and ensure that his name would be read in every military textbook for the end of times. A campaign that would conclude with the Battle of Auschwitz.